Hello, and welcome to another edition of the International Writers Collective Masterclass series. In each masterclass, recorded live in Amsterdam, working writers talk tips, tricks, and techniques with a focus on a single novel, short story, or handful of poems. In this edition, we speak with award-winning author Jennifer Clement. Her latest novel, Gun Love, was named a New York Times Editor's Choice book and made a number of top 10 lists for 2018, including Time magazines and the library journals. Clement, in addition to being an accomplished novelist, poet, and memoirist, is also the president of Penn International, one of the world's largest, most prestigious writers' associations. In this class, we speak about gun love, the challenges of writing about social issues, the role of research, why fiction writers should study poetry, how to fit writing into your day, and much more. Hi, everybody. I think all of you know me already. I'm Sarah Kerger, director of the International Writers Collective, and it's great to have you all here in this intimate setting with Jennifer Clement. She is the award-winning author of Benla, as well as a number of other novels, books of poetry, and also a memoir, The Widow Basquiat. And she's also the president of Penn International, which is a worldwide organization of writers, and they do some amazing work. And hopefully we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about that as well towards the end. We do want this to be an open discussion, so you know, feel free to jump in with your questions if something occurs to you in the moment. I think it's always nice to know from a writer how they came into writing. So what is your writer's origin story? Well, it's, it, it's a very um, young story because as a, as a little girl, I always loved to read and I always loved to write. So I have poems still to this day that I wrote when I was seven, when I was eight. And then in my teenage years, I wrote like crazy. Um, so, and I, and I grew up in Mexico City in very much a sort of environment of artists and writers and painters. My mother's a painter. So I was very close to that world. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I went to school with Gabriel Garcia Marquez's kids. Um, and Elizondo's kids, I mean, writers that were living in Mexico at the time. So it was, it was a world that was very close to me, too. Great. And this particular book, so I know the, the one before this, Prayers for the Stolen and Gun Love, kind of they're in dialogue together. Mm -hmm. So Prayers for the Stolen was about young girls being kidnapped in Mexico by the cartels. And then Gun Love is on the other side of the border. Could you talk a little bit about why you wanted to write Gun Love? Okay, well, I mean, um, I guess Gun Love is a book about uh, gun violence in the United States, but it's also very much a book about how guns get to Mexico. And this is a story that you don't hear about very much. But it is, you know, really fueling the terrible humanitarian crisis in Central America and in Mexico because of the amount of guns uh, that go. So as a very low figure, 20,000 guns cross every single day from the United States into Mexico. And the University of San Diego did a study in 2007 that if the guns did not go to Mexico, 47% of all gun dealers would be out of business. So it's almost 50% of the business of guns goes to Mexico and Central America. 
And also, if you study the border, on the United States side of the border, it, there's about 8,000 gun shops, also as a low figure. So really, for me, Gun Love is, is a book that, that, that addresses this, because um, it's, it's a grave problem. It doesn't get much press in the world or in the United States. In Mexico, it does. People are very aware of this in, the, in Mexico, and the president even talks about it. But, um, you know, for me, it was important to, to write about this. So, so the book uh, begins in the United States. It's also uh, important to me the fact that uh, what you know, the colonial world has been able to do with guns, because no primitive people have been able to confront guns, be it in Africa or India or the United States or wherever. Um, so uh, in Gun Love, there's the whole sort of spiritual world of native people. And... Uh, they're sort of like spirits that uphold the book. So really, if you study the Second Amendment, um, a lot of experts on the subject feel that really it stands on the permission to really exterminate a people. And when I was in South Africa, I was in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, which is the, the Zulu grounds in South Africa. And there, there's a lot of artwork of the spear against the rifle. And then I was in India, in the tribal regions, in the center of India, and there was amazing paintings, again, of the bow and arrow against the rifle, the machete against the rifle. And actually, in the last battle um, of, against uh, General Custer's army in the United States, when this huge uh, the battle cry of the native Americans, as they went into the guns, was, it's a good day to die. Because they all knew they could not, with their bows and arrows, they weren't going to survive the, the rifles. So there's, that is also an important part of the book that doesn't get talked about very much, in fact, cruelly at all. It's sort of strange to me, but it's an important part of the book for me. Yeah, you know? people get hung up on the U.S. gun culture, and they don't yeah. look much past that. Right. But so you had this, you know, this very big idea, something you felt passionately um, mm -hmm. that you wanted to write about. And you even had done a few nonfiction pieces um, mm -hmm. like the, the Church of the Gun. Right. And so how did you get from there to this also very personal story? Well, in, in, um, it takes me a long time to write a book, so I don't have tons and tons of books because I also do a lot of research. So, for example, Gun Love probably took about seven years to write, at least. So I always think of my books a little bit like icebergs, like what you see is really just the tip of what went into it. So for Gun Love, I, I went to the NRA several times. I wrote pieces about the NRA museum. I interviewed survivors of massacres, especially the... Uh, survivors of the Batman movie massacre, I don't know if you remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very involved with an organization called SHOOT, uh, which documents um, victims of gun shootings, and because we don't hear much about those that survive and how destroyed they are. So, I mean, it's, it's something that I've explored on many levels. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you had a lot of bits and pieces, and then 
was there a moment where you actually sat down and felt well, like I I'm knew s- the, the main character in Gun Love is called Pearl, mm-hmm. and she's not named as Pearl in Prayers for the Stolen, but she appears in Prayers for the Stolen. So it is a diptych. You can read them separately. You don't have to read them together, but if you were curious, you could read Prayers for the Stolen, identify Pearl, and then read Gun Love. So Prayers for the Stolen is how a Mexican girl might get to the United States, and Gun Love is how an American girl might get to Mexico. Uh, so, But I think to answer your question, sometimes what happens to me is that I just hear something, almost like a voice, so I heard Pearl say the opening sentence inside of me, and then I knew, I knew who she was from that opening sentence. And you knew that it would be about a mother and a daughter. That the emotional heart. Of well, the because story I knew be it there. was a diptych to prayers. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of mirroring between the two books. So <coughs> prayers is also about a mother and a daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also in three parts. It's also in the voice of the young Mexican girl. This is in the voice of. Pearl, the American girl, um, the benevolent Jewish character appears in both books, you know, which is an homage to, to Joyce and Ulysses. And um, so there's a lot of things that are happening. The love affair in part two, both books have a love affair in part two. Uh, so yeah, so there's, I knew as I was writing Gun Love, you know, that I was also talking to Prayers for the Storm. Right, speaking to that book. And you've spoken a little bit about the research that you did for the book, and part of that was, for example, you know, interviewing the people who survived, who had lost people in the in the Batman mm-hmm. opening. And I mean, that's a different kind of research, I think, than than many writers think about doing for their novels. You know, writers think about doing the the more you know the sort of factual research, mm-hmm. and then you know, and you also did many many interviews. For prayers for the stolen, and and so what do you think that brings to your writing? Well, I think it brings uh, a kind of shadow to the book, the research, where where one feels that that you trust the author mm-hmm. because the author really knows. For example, even with Gun Love, I had Rick Bass, who's an extraordinary writer, read it because he's a hunter. And he's a very serious hunter and he'll stalk an elk for five weeks and, you know, then, you know, after he kills the elk, he skins it and eats it and da 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 And I just wanted, you know, to get, you know, sort of the temperature of gun love, like how would a hunter feel about reading gun love? So all these kinds of things go into it, um, at least for me, you know. But for example, in Prayers for the Stolen, I didn't actually yet know what the book was about. I knew, I just knew that I wanted to write about how the violence was affecting mm-hmm. women because it was a very male-driven story, even in our literature, which is narco literature. Mm-hmm. And in the news, it was all about men and men and men. And there's just really nothing about women. And so for two years, I interviewed the women of drug traffickers. And then it got too dangerous after two years. I had to stop because uh, the president at the time, Calderon, declared a war against the cartels and it was just that sort of when this the country went into this catastrophic violent time and uh, but actually even though I never ended up writing about those women which I might someday because that was all fascinating but 
it was very important because then I knew when I did hear about what happened with these little girls, which is that in the state of Guerrero, these cartels, which are now complex mafias, they don't just deal in drugs, they also deal in extortion and trafficking of people mm. and uh, trafficking of arms and you know, guns. Mm. And, so they would you know, drive around the countryside looking for little girls to steal, especially pretty girls. Mm. So the, the mothers would make their girls ugly, as ugly as possible, so they would go unnoticed. And they would dig holes in their fields, and when they saw those uh, SUVs coming, they would put the little girls in these holes and cover them with palm fronds. And, and um, so that then I knew that was the book, because I couldn't get that out of my mind, that, that these little girls under the ground, you know, their little hearts beating like rabbits, you know, and sort of buried alive. And so I knew that was the book, but all the research of speaking to the women of drug traffickers, I knew exactly where these girls were being taken. So, you know, nothing is lost. I mean, it, it's all sort of there in a weird way. So it gives your books an, an authenticity mm -hmm. and uh, a depth. Yeah. And as well, maybe gets at kind of an emotional truth as well as, a, you know, literal truth. Yeah. Do you have any advice to writers in terms of, you know, as they're setting out to write a book, particularly one that does deal with some sort of larger issue? How do you start deciding where do you where do you go to do your research? Well, I think, you know, first of all, you have to. No, not all novels have to be social novels. These yes. happen to be novels that address mm -hmm. social issues, but that, it doesn't have to be that mm -hmm. way. But if you're going to write a book that deals with social issues, I think you would have to really do your research. Mm -hmm. Just because I think, you know, forget about the reader. I just think, you know, this sort of ethical compromise with yourself and mm -hmm. commitment to what you're doing. I mean, for example, in... In Prayers for the Stolen, I was pretty sure it's very important that this mountain sort of gets bored through to build a new highway. And this highway is very important in, in the destruction of the community. And I was pretty sure that the stone of that mountain was sort of pink mm -hmm. and that it was a bit like a scrape of skin mm -hmm. when they cut it, that mountain. So I actually drove all the way to Acapulco to really have a good look mm -hmm. at that stone in that mountain which it does it is pinkish that kind of pinkish so i mean i'll do something like that just to get it right you know and then of course in in paris of the stolen part three takes place in the women's jail in mexico mm -hmm. city so i spent a lot of time in the women's jail there so even though it's uh you know it's not about that mm -hmm. you know it's it's all correct in a way yeah emotionally correct anyway but then, of it's course, it's their favorite book, by the way. Oh. It's like the <laughs> book of the jail. <laughs> um, so there's the there's all the research go, that goes into it, but of course, then there's like the a huge element of imagination that comes into it. But you know, it's so weird because when you get into the research and you start writing, uh, there's like the gift from the gods that come. So, for mm -hmm. example, in Gun Love, this one gift that you're just like thinking. How can this be, you know? Mm -hmm. And that is that, so for me, it was very important to have Selena Quintanilla in the book. I don't know if any of you remember who she was, a Tejana, mm -hmm. who was killed by her manager at age 23. He, she, it was a, a she, mm -hmm. uh, which is rare. Mm -hmm. But she shot her and she bled out 
and uh, died. And she was already a huge star. And her father and her brothers composed all the music. They're just a very talented family. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer Lopez did a movie about her <laughs> called Selena. <laughs> and so I wanted Selena to be in it. And uh, so I started to research Selena and I went to Corpus Christi and I saw her little museum and I went to her grave so that in the book mm-hmm. it's all, you know, correct how mm-hmm. the grave is and how the, everything is. And then I was like, well, what happened to the gun? You know, this is always a, a good question. Like, where is the gun of this story? So it turns out that the gun was found in a paper bag at the police station in some sort of box. And when they were doing the Museum of Selena, everybody there was this big, you know, discussion as to whether it was appropriate or not to have the gun in the museum. You know, like, mm-hmm. do we have the the gun that killed Kennedy, like mm-hmm. in a glass case someplace. Where is that gun? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Or where's John, the gun that killed John Lennon? I mean, what happened to these things? So I started to research what happened to the gun. And so the gun, once they started to do the museum for her, they all agreed that, no, 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 we couldn't have the gun in the museum. The family just thought that was too much. So the judge ordered that the gun be broken into 40 pieces. And he loaned his sailboat, this is in Corpus Christi, so it's Corpus Christi Bay, which is, means body of Christ. I mean, it's just like perfect well. for a novelist. <laughs> and um, or lent his sailboat so they could take the gun out into the bay and throw the pieces of the gun into the bay. So though that gun is in pieces at the bottom of Corpus Christi mm-hmm. Bay how can that be, you know, friends? So for me, it was just like, oh my God, this Perfect. is Perfect. <laughs> how can this story mm-hmm. be, you know? So when you go to reality, it's, it's, it's always tremendous. Mm-hmm. So what were the, the things along the way that kind of, that came to you just from your imagination that, that surprised you? Well, I think that one thing that I feel quite strongly is that as I've matured as a writer, mm-hmm. I trust my imagination more. Mm-hmm. So as, as a sort of more novice writer, I was more like trying to control everything. Mm-hmm. And as I've written more books, I think I'm more relaxed in opening the door to the unconscious mm-hmm. and letting it just come, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, a very good example of that was the writing of The Death of Selena which I couldn't get it and I couldn't get it. And I just thought, well, go to sleep and just think about her. And in the morning, you'll know how to write this. And it just came. Your unconscious worked on it overnight and then delivered it in the morning for you. Yeah, as it will for a crossword puzzle, as you all know. (laughs) (laughs) Ask a good question. Sure. Do you allow yourself sometimes to stray from the truths that you've learned? Oh, yeah, yeah, because I'm writing a novel. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so how do you make those decisions? How does that... It's intuitive. I I don't know that I could really answer, like, specifically. Mm -hmm. I thought the gum thing was made up. This is interesting to find out that that (laughs) really was true. It's real. The Selena thing? Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was wondering if that, about the gum being cut into pieces and thrown into the water, Mm. Was that kind of an inspiration to when Poe throw, steals the toothbrush and throws it in? When you're talking about it, it had that image of the, 
the toothbrush lying mm -hmm. on the, the yeah, bed yeah. of the river. When that was sitting there. Like already in your head. Mm -hmm. It wasn't already in my head, but that's also where the unconscious is yes. working constantly, yeah. you know, making links. Making links. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't actually. No. I think it would be nice to maybe just look at the first chapter in the novel okay. and, and talk about it, just do a deep dive on the technique here. I think it's just such an amazing opening. Okay. So you want me to read it? Yeah. My mother was a cup of sugar. You could borrow her any time. My mother was so sweet. Her hands were always birthday party sticky. Her breath held the five flavors of Lifesaver's candy. And she knew all the love songs that are a university for love. She knew, slowly walk close to me. Where did you sleep last night? Born under a bad sign. And all the I'll kill you if you leave me songs. But sweetness is always looking for Mr. Bad. And Mr. Bad can pick out Miss Sweet in any crowd. My mother opened her mouth in a great wide O and breathed him right into her body. I couldn't understand. She knew all the songs, so why would she get messed and stirred up with this man? When he said his name was Eli, she was down on her knees. His voice tamed her immediately. The first words he said were all she needed. He spoke singing. I am your medicine, sweet baby. My, oh me, oh my, your name has always been written on my heart. And from there on, all he had to do was whistle for her. You said that the, that the first line, actually, in a way, was the, the kernel uh -huh. uh, from which this book grew. Mm -hmm. So was this always the first chapter? And, and how different was your first draft from what you ended up with? Well, many, many drafts, but that was always <laughs> the first so. line. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. always the first line. And um, uh, and also there was this, when I heard that line for the first time, mm -hmm. to me it was a song lyric. Yeah. And so that was the also the door in, because I do see Gun Love as, it could be a great ballad. Mm -hmm. It could be a long song. Mm -hmm. So, and then I looked for the, these amazing, you know, songs that that uh, sort of accompany the book. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a DJ in New York did a whole soundtrack of the book. Oh, wow. And it's being made into a play in Zurich, and they're doing it all as this whole music, like a whole musical with all the music. Oh, that'll be amazing. Yeah. So. It is very poetic, this first chapter, and it draws a lot on techniques that I think, you know, we see in a way more often in, in poetry, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. that starting with that very strong metaphor, instead of saying my mother was like a cup of sugar, my mother was a cup of sugar. I mm -hmm. mean, it, the power in that metaphor to kind of signal to us that, you know, you're, you're, you're entering a different world. In well, a way. I mean, yeah. I will go, I will do a, a, a spell check on the word like and try mm -hmm. to eliminate it as much as possible. And turn it into a metaphor as much as possible. Because a simile will always be weaker. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and you really see that here. Yeah. And I think also the use of hyperbole in this section is really, you know, that everything is just so, in a way, you know, over the top. Not my mother fell in love, but my mother opened her mouth and breathed him into her body. 
that it really, uh, I mean, it really grabs you by the, by the lapels. So that voice that Pearl has here, I mean, is that something that you had to write your way into or was it there pretty well, much the from the beginning? Well, the thing is, I'm the most surprised person of all that I can mm-hmm. write character and plot. I didn't mm-hmm. know that about myself. So I have always written poetry ever since, as I said, as a little girl. And I knew that I was interested once I started to write uh, novels that I was interested in creating a fusion mm-hmm. of genre. So I would say that all my novels are a fusion mm-hmm. of prose and poetry. Um, for me, it's very important how it's told. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I would say that I'm more interested in how it's told than what I'm telling. And also, I'm the kind of writer, another reason why I think my books take forever to write is that I'm the kind of writer that I'll write 30 words and I'll cut 50. So I'm always like going backwards. I can never get ahead. I can never get enough on the page because I'm cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting. So it's hard to make my books grow. Yeah, well, I mean, it is extremely well crafted. I mean, I think as writers in particular, we really, you know, we really appreciate that. And that that first section is almost like poetry also with the short little paragraphs that are kind of demanding you look with great attention at each line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it works really well. But but talking about that fusion of, of poetry and fiction, so what would you say that that the that poetic aspect to it brings to the novel? I, I just think that perhaps a reader uh, will will have a different experience. But what it brings to me, mm-hmm. because I don't really think about the reader that mm-hmm. much, uh, I, the challenge is to myself. You know, so mm-hmm. I want to write what I want to read. You know, I want to re- write the book that I want to read, and um, so so I do have a preference for uh, books that have you know interesting language and in fact you know one of the sort of gripes I have with contemporary novels is how how bad the dialogue is Mm -hmm. and how mundane and banal Mm -hmm. I mean so for me I had and even when I give classes as a teacher I'm always talking about the great playwrights Mm -hmm. like I want my dialogue to be like evoking Tennessee Williams or Mm -hmm. evoking Pinter I don't want to write you know the dialogue that and, and also, I don't like to use a lot of um, dirty words in, in my books. I mean, there's only one moment, um, and it's a very important moment when the sort of Tiresias prophet Native mm-hmm. American woman gets on the bus, and she's obviously a heroin addict, mm-hmm. but she's also a prophet. And, and we've had all this music and Billie Holiday and Netta James mm-hmm. and all the music and songs and everything, and then she looks at Pearl and says, and you you like a little fuck song, mm-hmm. you know? So it's very, it's the only time that the word fuck is in the book, you know? So and I'm it very really careful. hits you. Well, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it echoes everything that's been going on. But it, I, um, so yeah, so I'm, I, I just approach it all, I guess, as a poet more, including the dialogue. Yeah. Like I'm always shocked when I read this dialogue with, you know, dirty words on very banal, yeah. all about everyday stuff. I just, I don't mm-hmm. want to write that dialogue. Yeah. In a way, it, it, I mean, looking at the lyrical tone here, it made me think um, about a poem that I taught a few years ago and, and have not taught again because some of the students actually just couldn't get through it because it was 
very painful, but it was by Patricia Smith, The Five Stages of Drowning. And it was based on two true stories of men throwing their baby daughters off of bridges. Mm. And it was about the children drowning. And her language was just so amazingly lyrical. And I mean, she just used every tool in the poet's toolbox. And she'd taken something that was horrible and that she felt really angry about. And she made it into something that was amazing. So that separation of the kind of the tone, that beautiful lyrical tone, and then the mood underneath, which was anger. And, you know, and that's true. I mean, I would say that's very true of my books. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and I guess one of my questions, you know, reading the book as well was, you know, it's clear that you feel, you know, very passionately about these issues. And how do you keep the the issues and the message and you know the anger from overwhelming the story i don't know i think it's important it's like when you ride a horse and you're holding Mm -hmm. that rein you know you don't Mm -hmm. let that happen so that happens when you write um but back to a bit about this poem i really can understand that because for example even with prayers for the stolen which is about the stealing of little girls and a lot of people were like, oh, that's so depressing. I'm not going to read that. And it was so hard for the publicists because they didn't know how to sell it and let people know it's really enchanting yeah. and, and it's completely full of beauty. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you... And that's the challenge for me. Like, how can I write about these things? Um, I guess when I say with poetry, it also means with a kind of elevated place you know Mm -hmm. because I do think that poetry is the greatest literary art Mm -hmm. and so um you know how 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 simile and metaphor can take you to a place of great discovery and truth yeah they can get at truth that it would be impossible to get at with literal language and also you know on the same subject is that in my books you'll never have you know a graphic sex scene or a graphic violence scene Mm -hmm. ever I'm always looking for ways to write about those things uh I guess with poetry I mean the example I gave last night about the gang rape of Paula in Prayers for the Stolen I mean I would never write that in a million years and it wouldn't cross my mind for and also because I wouldn't want her to lose her dignity. Um, And so what she says to her friend is, what can I tell you? I was like a plastic water bottle that everybody took a swig from. So that's how I would describe a gang rape. Mm -hmm. I would never write a gang rape, Um, not because I can't do it, Mm -hmm. but it's a choice not to do it. So... um, so, you know, I, I, all, all, my, all the sex scenes I've ever written are all going <clears throat> through that through metaphorical. Yeah, and the same with all the violent scenes. So. You talked about the importance of, you know, wanting your dialogue to, you know, to sound like the dialogue in a play. And the, and the voices of these characters are so distinctive you know like that the way the mother Margot talks in particular all the reported things that Pearl says about her like that line um 
which is where she's warning Pearl not to make friends because there's always somebody who wants to sit in a chair in heaven and, you know, they can become, go from your friend to your honor in no time. And I, I just thought, wow, that line is just so amazing. Your friends it's can such become a dis- your honor. Yes. Yeah. It's such a, um, it's such a distinctive voice. Um, and all of the voices here are so distinctive. Where so is that where where do you get those voices? Where does that come from? Well, there's a point, you know, where I make a map. So I after writing for a while, um, I will do the family tree of the book. Mm-hmm. So I'll actually draw it like a family tree, mm-hmm. you know, and say, Okay, well here's Pearl and here's Margot and these are Pearl's friends. It, in in both Prayers for the Stolen and Gun Love, I had to eliminate a friend. Like I couldn't mm-hmm. hold so many friends. So uh, I became, like created fusions of friends um, because it just became too many stories out of my control. Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, Lady Di in prayers, I think she has um, three friends, uh, Maria and Stephanie. Yeah, I guess she has really, really two friends. And Pearl only has one friend. Uh, so wait, what was where were when I were talking about this? The distinctive oh, the voices of the characters yeah. and the making of so the tree. So once I have the tree, and that's you know pretty far along when mm-hmm. I finally am able to draw the tree, and then realize okay there are too many you know so who who lives in the trailer? Who, part one tree of part mm-hmm. one. We have Pearl and Margot, and these people live in the trailer, mm-hmm. and these are the friends, and where is the school, and how far is the school, and it's like a mapping of it. And then I will think about their voices, like how do these people speak? Mm-hmm. So I knew that Eli had to speak like a song, mm-hmm. that one of the reasons Margot loves him immediately is because of the way he speaks. It's just like, you know, song lyric, total song lyric. And then I knew that um, uh, in order for, for Pearl to be able to do certain things, that I don't know if everybody here has read the book, but suspect not um so i won't spoil it (laughs) um but in order for her to do certain things i had to accentuate the daredevil in her and sort of not too much but you know some you know she had to be able to have enough character to do certain things whereas in in prayers for the stolen it was okay for lady died to be sort of swept up by events Whereas I knew Pearl had to be more active, act. a more active character. So, I mean, those sorts of things. But it, for me, it helps very much when I draw the book visually, as you know, as literally as a tree. Mm-hmm. And who's who and how do they re- react and what's going on. So are you a plotter or a pantser? <laughs> what's a pantser? Flying by the seat of your pants. <laughs> Well, it's, I don't know a if bit I'm of flying, but I'm definitely plotting, but I wouldn't say I'm flying. I'm just sort of um, like open, like the door is open to the unconscious of mm-hmm. um, letting it speak. Too. So it sort of grows organically then, the what happens in the story. It's not like you sit down and come up with an outline and oh, no. or feel like that... You know, okay, I know that, you know, towards the end of the book, oh, this yeah, no, needs to happen do, no, or that needs to, to happen. I have to let the imagination be there. Like, I wrote mm-hmm. in, in when I was, like, 19 years old, I wrote mm-hmm. two romance novels for mm-hmm. money. 
And then I just did it, like I did them in, like in two days each well. week. Well, it was just like so fast. I just did chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, and then I just like filled it in like a drawing, you mm-hmm. know. But no, not when I'm writing like this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I never did that again. But I'm, I'm, I, that was actually quite cool to have done that. <laughs> I, I think it is reassuring um, for writers who are just starting out to hear that it's okay not to know where your book is going and that most writers or a good percentage of writers actually kind of feel their way along. And, and also that, for the reader, I mean, Coleridge said poetry is at its best when it's not completely understood. Yeah. And I do think that it's okay not to completely understand. I think we live in a time where everybody wants to really understand and really get it. And and actually, you know, I for me, the end of Gonna Love, it's a mysterious end, even for me. Mm-hmm. I knew it was the end. I knew that that was the end. Uh, it just, I felt it in my bones. But it took me a while to even... Mm-hmm really understand what that end was I think I understand it now and I was speaking to my Dutch translator last night and um, she's like Jennifer the end you know Mm -hmm. and I said I know I know Mm -hmm. she goes well I didn't ask you about it because I just thought well I'm channeling this too Mm -hmm. so she also as a translator kind of just like went with whatever was going on there Mm -hmm. with um I, I, I was I did want to ask so mister don't come back Hmm. Did you know he was coming back when you wrote him the first time? I mean, when you maybe not the first time, mm-hmm. but pretty soon I knew mm-hmm. he'd be coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It will make much more sense once you've read the <laughs> once you've read the book. Does anybody have any you know, burning questions? Yes. yes. Writing about really painful, difficult topics um, is clearly important for creating a real work of art, otherwise it doesn't have much power. But how do you handle that emotionally? I mean, I'm reminded of Sebastian Salgado, who was a um, Brazilian photographer, mm-hmm. his uh, exodus um, project, where he charted people who were refugees from different countries. Afterwards, he was deeply depressed, and it took him a long time to get over that project. He had to do Genesis in order to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, so, did you find that it was difficult for you to to write about this topic in particular, where there's so in your other books where there's so much trauma when you empathize with your characters, and how did you handle that? You know, when I was little and growing up in Mexico, and there was so much poverty, and I remember being very uh, sort of badly affected, very badly affected. Um, so I remember there was this one beggar that my mother didn't give money to. And I, you know, I must've been six years old or something. And I was in such bad shape about it that she actually had to go back and it took about a week to refind that beggar in a market. And then I had to go with her and we gave him some money. So, but then I remember in my teens reading Camus, the rebel and reading how you know, you can be on the soapbox or you can be a politician or you can get involved with an NGO or you can be an artist. And so I remember just feeling, okay, I don't have to stand on a box. I don't have to like be Mother Teresa. I can write about the things that hurt. So I remember just feeling very sort of at peace that, Mm -hmm. that this was okay, that this, this way to help the world was a way, you know? 
but then in terms of dealing with the pain, it's, I don't know, I don't know, it's interesting because I ask myself that question. Because not only do I deal with it in my books, I deal with it in my life. I have a very, um, on one hand, I live with a lot of pain because of the pen work. And on the other hand, I, I am in touch every single day of my life with the bravest people in the world. These are people that risk their lives, their livelihood, their homeland, their families to tell the truth. So I'm in a constant state of um, just feeling so humbled and sort of on my knees. You know, tonight I give the prize to uh, the Freedom of Expression Prize to uh, Darin Tatur, who I went to see in Israel. Who, you know, in Penn we have 46 poets in jail. And I'll be talking about Khashoggi. Um, you know, how dangerous are writers? Writers are really dangerous people. So I don't really know exactly how I do it, but I, I seem to be able to do it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm just wondering about your characters. I absolutely adore the character of the mother. Um, right from the beginning, it's like I had such a clear picture of her. Um, I'm wondering how much you draw either consciously or unconsciously from people that you know when a character is being formed. Is it totally, obviously it's, it's, everything's based on something in your experience, but it's really all from the imagination, yeah. I mean, but what I can say, I mean, for example, in A True Story Based on Lies uh, and The Poison That Fascinates, these are my other novels, and then Prayers for the Stolen, I have never felt um, that they have to do with me personally. Like, I've always felt that they're very distant from me. But with Pearl and Margot, I feel like very close to them. So they're in a kind of fusion-y way. But it's not like you write something about that character or some characteristic and it takes you to someone that you know. No. No, okay. Only in Prayers for the Stolen is the is the only book, I think, where there's a real character, a person that I really knew, but not an important, that important. It was the, the, the painter who gave collage classes at the jail, the women's jail. So he's in the book. He's very proud to be in the book because he knows that's him. It doesn't have his name, but... He's the only real person in that book. Uh, in Gun Love, there's no, there's nobody based on somebody. No. Mm-hmm. Becky, you had a question. Oh yeah, I did have a question. Um, I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, your point about things not always being completely understood, um, mm-hmm. and certainly as a reader, the ending did feel. But even more so, I think some of the peripheral characters in the book feel mm-hmm. not completely understood. Um, Ray never really speaks any English, and we only learn about him through what Corazon says. Um, Noel has a bit of a question mark, Sergeant Bob is. Um, And this isn't a a criticism. I like that these characters still resonate for me because they're not so clearly defined and fleshed out to be as in, this is who they are, this is what they're doing even after the book. I don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. I do think about those characters. And I'm wondering, um, how do you find that balance between um, a light touch to characters who are, who are sort of orbiting this story, but yet well enough to find um, that your readers have a connection with them? You mentioned that you tend to like write 30 words and pull back 50. Do you overwrite characters, or how does that work for you? 
Probably overripe cut. Overripe cut. Overripe cut. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah. But that, for me, there it's very clear that they're secondary characters, and that if I flesh them out too much, then they become too important. I mean, so it is a weird balance that you just—it's almost intuitive. I mean, I was—it was very clear to me that Corazon had to speak for Ray. That if I had Ray speaking, it was just going to be like so exhausting to hear him too, you know. <laughs> and also, you know, she represents Mexico, and she's this kind of well. For me, I really love Corazon. I mean, she's this total Mexican mother, you know, type that is is so um, incredibly loyal, but at the same time a bit crazy. And so, you know, her loyalty could change like that, like when Pearl suddenly thinks like she's really becoming enchanted with Noel, and she's yeah. like, oh. You know, maybe she'll take Noel instead of me, you yeah. know. So, um, which also helped pushes Pearl out the door, too, because I think it's very human nature to feel like if you're being replaced, then you want that more than ever, you know. Mm -hmm. So that kind of also is something that gives her a little push, too, the jealousy that she feels that yeah. this could happen. And, yeah, and, and Corazon is just so larger than life. It's such a cliche to say that, but she is. She's this, like, totally tremendous woman and so I, I just couldn't have Ray there having opinions so I just thought yeah he'll be and there's so many Mexicans in the United States that are so embarrassed to speak English and they're very quiet it's very typical um, because they don't speak English or it's very broken English and they're embarrassed so they'll stay quiet and so Ray is kind of this macho Mexican guy, and he's not going to be made fun of, you know? Mm -hmm. They'd rather just shut up. And she says that. Yeah. So, I mean, she does let us know why he doesn't speak. We are always talking in our workshops about the importance of the details and kind of going back to that question of, you know, so how do you saturate your book with a with a with a theme without it kind of taking over the story and losing the story and I was just so amazed looking at the details in this book how you've managed to do that like I'm thinking about the the carved ivory tusk that Margot takes from her her family home and it's carved um, with little Chinese uh, sailors actually and so you know the Chinese invented gunpowder and then you have the the ship, which, you know, the beginning of the colonial enterprise was ships plus guns mm -hmm. and that it's an, you know, an ivory tusk, you know, so an elephant that was also shot by a gun. I mean, such a rich, powerful detail. Mm -hmm. Do those, I mean, do you consciously have to go back in at some point in your drafting process and feel like, okay, like this detail isn't really doing very much for my story. I need to find something that's really going to be more impactful. Well, for example, in that case, I knew immediately that Margot could not be white trash, mm -hmm. like trailer trash. And mm -hmm. also for me, one thing that's been, you know, I guess it's logical, but it's a bit disappointing too, is that for me, the whole idea that it was Florida didn't really matter to me mm -hmm. at all. The only reason it's happening in Florida is that I wanted the Trail of Tears, which mm -hmm. is where the Native Americans walked to try and get away from the guns. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a strong native population that could exist as ghosts, and that's Florida. Mm -hmm. They had a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of uh, native people living there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was more the reason. It was also very important to me that the cross be at Laredo, because that's where the huge, huge um, gun shows are, mm -hmm. the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. 
And also I wanted to get to Corpus Christi because I wanted Selena to be in it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to really see how was this voyage going to be. And it had to really be from Florida. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I wasn't not that into like Florida mm -hmm. exoticism, mm -hmm. you know. It's so weird for me that in the American edition, they just like grabbed onto the alligators, alligators. you know, such a sort of cliche, really. Mm. Um, so to me, what was important about the alligators were that they were Siamese mm -hmm. alligators and therefore of the spirit world, of the mm. Native Americans as, as, a, as something, you know, that you would see on their totem pole or something, mm -hmm. you know, and then the spirits come and take those alligators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I didn't want that cliche of sort of white trash in the trailer park. And also it allows me as a writer to bring in an educated voice. Mm -hmm. And so the same in prayers for the stolen, the mother who's very uneducated, Rita, she's obsessed with documentaries on television. Mm -hmm. And I go, that book talks about what is television knowledge? Because if you go to these rural areas of Mexico or Africa or mm -hmm. India or wherever, you know, there's so much knowledge coming in through the television that is not uh, supported by any formal education. Mm -hmm. So to allow Rita to be obsessed with, you know, the pyramids in Egypt and all this mm -hmm. stuff allowed me to, to give it, you know, I could talk about the River Styx, for example, because, mm -hmm. you know, she had seen something about this on a documentary mm -hmm. or whatever. And then with Margot... I didn't, you know, I wanted her to be educated so that I could bring in Rachmaninoff into mm. a trailer park or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I knew there would be stuff in the trunk. Plus for me, it's a very fairy tale, Pandora's mm -hmm. box, mm -hmm. you know, the cave yeah. um, full of treasures. So I knew that that trunk had to be really special and, and that you could like open it and it would all shine and mm. jewels and, you know, like mm -hmm. it would have that fairy tale aspect. Yeah. But actually writing what was in the trunk, mm -hmm. it was one of the last things I really, mm -hmm. I knew it was that all the stuff was in there, but it was, I could just start mm -hmm. to say, I'll go back to that. Yeah. And then I had to think, okay, what is in here? So I did think, what you mean? Yeah. yeah, I did think of the elephant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of mm -hmm. the killing of the elephants yeah. with the guns. That was totally intentional. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then the jewelry and then, you know, the wedding dress. The wedding dress was really important for other reasons. And uh, and then the musical instrument, because, you know, they were obviously very fine people that mm. cared about music and cared about books. Mm. And so it just, it just gives this other feeling to the whole book for me. And it does, I mean, talking about that fairy tale, like feeling it, 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 does very much have that. I mean, and I think you established that really nicely in the opening as well. And Margot says to Pearl at one point, um, you know, you were born in a fairy tale. And then there's that wonderful passage where Margot is talking about you plant one thing and then something else comes up and it's like we're being invited into this magical world. So I think that, you know, like the fact that it has that element is one thing that kind of keeps it from feeling like, oh, you know, this is a book about, you know, guns. It, it gives it so much richness. And then I think it also, the book got a lot from having them living in a car. So where did that, at what point did that, did you know from the beginning that, that you wanted to give them this unusual kind well, of I've life? I've always been pretty fascinated by people that live in cars. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that's really interesting. And there's a whole culture of this in the United States. So it just made them more vulnerable. Mm 
mm-hmm. and it made them not even part of the community of the trailer park. They're mm-hmm. out, parked outside the trailer mm-hmm. park in the parking lot. Yeah, in the parking lot. And obviously, you know, she thought they would be there for a few months, and that happens to people that live in cars. They all think, you know, oh, I'll just be here for a couple months, and then a year goes by, and then, well, you know, next year I'll get an apartment, mm-hmm. and another year goes by, mm-hmm. and that happens with homeless people, mm-hmm. is that once you're there, it's really hard to get out. You think it's mm-hmm. going to be easier than it is. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have any questions you'd like to ask? Um, how have you learned to deal with the riders block for the years? I don't think I've really had riders block ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when I'm not riding, I'm not worried about it. It's not as though I'm like, oh, I'm not riding. I don't. I just sort of, I'm, I'm relaxed about it. And I think I also don't. Feel, I'm not like, I don't feel like in a rush to write a ton of books. Mm-hmm. I'm. I want to really write good books, not many books. So I don't have that kind of pressure on myself. So one of the things we talk about in our workshop is finding ways to kind of wrangle that negative voice in your mm-hmm. head. You know, the one where you start writing, it's like, no, this isn't good enough. Like, this is, you should just give up now. Do you, do oh, you I also have, have that negative that. voice? And I and totally how do you handle it? I always feel like the book is terrible. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's that horrible thing. Yeah, it's really hard to get away from it. I'm just feeling, you know, who cares about this? And it's not good. Um, yeah, I suffer from that for sure. Yeah. And do you have any tricks for kind of pushing past that? I think you really have to write it for you. Mm-hmm. So it's the book that you want to write that mm-hmm. says what you want to say. That's why I think embracing the mysterious is important because mm-hmm. if you're writing for the reader, you're not thinking about the mysterious mm-hmm. or allowing the mysterious to be there. Mm-hmm. I really only write for myself. I think that's the trick. Because if you're sitting down thinking, oh, so am I going to be published? And what are they going to say? And are they going to like it? Mm-hmm. To sit down with all those critics, I think, is is devastating. In many ways, I think that it helped me not to be like living in a place like New York City or something mm-hmm. like that, where there would be so much pressure mm-hmm. from the community. Of, I felt sort of isolated from all of that. I could create my own voice and what I wanted to do mm-hmm. in a kind of pure way, away from all that competitive. Yeah. I remember inviting this one poet to Mexico, and she was like, this person won that, and that one got that, and this one, and I just thought, oh, you know, it's just like yeah. too much information, you know, uh, about yeah, <laughs> like we, caring too much about all of that. We yeah. try and tell our writers to focus on the process and not the product. Yeah. Um, but I mean, over the years, I've had really good advice. I mean, uh, especially for poets, when I when um, with W.S. Merwin, he said, always write for the book. And that has always been something to think about, because mm-hmm. it means that unconsciously you're writing for the creation of a, a whole complete something. Mm-hmm. And especially poets, you know, we can have a scrap about this and a scrap about that and a poem about this. Mm-hmm. And then you look at them and you think, you know, well, what is this? And so that has helped me a lot, this idea of always writing for the book. So that it's like something energetic that you're doing. Yeah, you know? that's a good one to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Linda, sorry. Just a question. I'm just mm-hmm. curious if you had any inkling about whether there might be a, whether it might become addictive. 
Oh, so everybody I, asks me that. Mm-hmm. I don't feel there is. Do you feel there is? No, I just, I found it very hard to let go of the pearls. It's like, oh, but, but you know, those, yeah. oh, potentially, but you know, once you mm-hmm. do that, or once you do yeah. that, or, and I understand why I had to end it, but mm-hmm. just, you know, on a personal level, I just was quite attached yeah. to it. Well, it's funny because so many people have said to me, you know, well, it's so open-ended. Well, what book isn't? Is there a book that is not open-ended? I think they're all open-ended, you know, unless you just kill everybody off at the end, you know. But when I wrote Prayers, I knew very much that I would then write the story of that American girl, um, which is Pearl. But I don't feel it right now like there's a third book. I feel like it's these two stories that stand together, and I know that Penguin Random House eventually will publish them in a in a box. They'll mm-hmm. be side by side. Mm-hmm. But and movies are being made of both of them, but it's not the same people making them. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. So um, I don't feel it, but if anybody feels where there might be a third yeah. story, <laughs> I, I'm open well, to hearing it. I don't want to be prescriptive, but I found an interesting thing, and I don't know if this has got brought up last night is also the whole situation with the VA hospital being there mm-hmm. because it's just another resonance of a type of violence yeah. mm-hmm. that we all accept mm-hmm. yeah. um, just on a sort of grander scale. Oh, that's a subject that really horrifies me, the, the way the, the vets are treated. Yeah. It's, I just think it's, I, I just even can almost not talk about it. I just think it's so horrible, you know, that they don't have supplies that there's nobody to care for them, that they have to, you know, I just think that that is really outrageous, you know. So I wanted to touch on that a little bit, but also because Margot has empathy malady, I needed to get her really sick and and to get her to the point where this illness just over, overcomes her. Mm-hmm. So I also thought, you know, having her working as a cleaning lady in a hospital, that would be pretty bad. And then because I wanted to have this character, then he sort of appeared. Mm-hmm. So, Sergeant with Roger. Mm-hmm. Tasni? I have a question about, uh, well, the poetry and the novel. So you said this book, for example, took you seven years to write. And you do plot, but you also kind of go with it. So in terms of a poem, do you do that in... Poems? Yeah. No, I think the be- my be- the poem I like the best that I've written. It took seven years to write it took that seven poem. Years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, I'm I'm not so fast. Yeah. Okay. So. One more question then, based on what you just said about um, when you you said poets tend to write about this and that and a lot of different things, but you should write about the book or for the book. For the book. What does that mean, with, with in terms of poetry? especially in terms of poetry that as you're that it's sort of unconscious it's not something so it's sort of like buddhist well Mm. he said it was buddhist it's like your intention what is my intention so is my intention to write this poem Mm. or is my deep intention to write a collection Mm. and if your deep intention is to write a collection somehow or other those poems will unconsciously be speaking to one another and you'll be creating a book of poems Mm. as opposed to a little ticka 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 and don't you want to know what the poem was about that took seven years to write? Yes. <laughs> yes, we would. <laughs> okay. It's about having an erotic dream about somebody and then bumping into them the next day. <laughs> I hope it's happened to everybody. <laughs> Can you recite it for us? <laughs> that poem? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. I have it. I can... Okay. 
So why did it take so long? Because the first part is the dream, which is erotic, but since it's eroticism in a dream, I didn't feel it could be like common eroticism. It had to be dream eroticism, so weird eroticism. And then the second part is a conversation with Shakespeare. So I don't know if you remember in Midsummer Night's Dream, but the lovers, when they go into the wood, Lysander loves Helena and Hermia. Then Puck does his business. Then they both love Helena. And then when the king of the fairies, Oberon, says, you know, go fix the mess, he doesn't clean Demetrius's eyes. Because when Demetrius leaves the wood, he's in love with Helena. So Puck makes it right. And so each lover is, mm. you know. And then the end is, is, is humorous. So it's like all these different tones. That's why it was hard to write. But it's short. It's not some long poem. Even though it took seven years, it's not mm. that long. Let's see if I can work off my bit. While you're looking. So I mean, we, we always teach uh, poetry and fiction in all of our mm-hmm. workshops because we feel like poets and fiction writers get so much out of studying the other form and so many of our writers have have become hybrids and or came in thinking they were fiction writers and then decided you know actually maybe I'm a poet well I think poetry is the highest art Mm -hmm. so I mean it's always good to be immersing oneself in poetry Mm -hmm. I I mean that's what I think okay so it's called Midsummer. In my dream, you had me, locked in your jaws, taken by the neck. You said, because in my dream you spoke, I smelled like the plow and scythe, the metal rust-red blade of a gin trap. You tasted my neck, my fur, the soft fur around my paws and white scut, the sleek long ears, loin and leg. You slit open my belly and looked into my body and touched what was not for touch, what was not for the light, even the light of dreams. In the adulterous dream, we fit. I wore your shoes and gloves. You wrapped my blouse around your neck. Your blue tie knotted at my wrist. Our buttons buttoned and unbuttoned till daybreak, till I am the one left, like Demetrius. Puck never cleaned his eyes to walk out of the wood, still in the dream, and forever. When I meet you on Monday or Tuesday, I say, good day, sir, yes, sir, good morning, mister, and you smile and shake my hand, and do not know of the milk you licked off my fingers, fingers dipped in the milk of bed linen. We could spend a whole nother class on that. (laughs) Touching on something that you talked about last night when you were talking about the work of Penn International and something that's come up in, in our, in our workshops before, you know, students are afraid to write from the perspective of people who are very different than themselves. And there's this whole fear of cultural appropriation and I mean, it's such a thorny subject. And we there was a fantastic piece in The Guardian some time back, How Free Should Novelists Be to Imagine Radically Different Lives by Morgan Jones. And we posted it on our Facebook page and it dropped like a stone, like nobody wanted to touch it. 
Mm-hmm. And Nobody wants to touch it. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell folks a little bit about... Well, I completely disagree with that. Yeah. Um, I believe, uh, and, you know, not just me, I mean, many people believe in the, mm-hmm. in the incredible, amazing thing that we have, which is the imagination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly in Penn, where we deal with so many writers in prison, they'll all tell you they survived because of the imagination. And, I mean, Shakespeare is not Macbeth. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think that me as a writer, I would hate to be placed in the ghetto of my own experience. How boring mm-hmm. is that? So, you know, obviously, have there been injustices? Yes. Has, has there been a lack of mercy? Yes. But, you know, literature is the universal. What's happened, which is very worrisome, is that and it even happens unconsciously, is that people are practicing self-censorship because they're so afraid of being attacked. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully we'll get through this because it's, it's literally just turning your back on the land of the imagination, which is where mm-hmm. all writers live. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so we, we have a little manifesto, the International Writers Collective, in the last paragraph of that says, you know, we believe that reading and writing are two of the most rewarding uh, activities in this life and that both contribute to making our world better because they enable you to see through eyes not your own and they can bridge ideologies and cultures and create understanding. Good. I'm glad that there's the movement forming in the world. Yes. (laughs) Final question. It's a very okay, question, but probably a short email. Okay. I'm just curious, when do you write? Do you write every day, in the morning, in the evening, long walks, short walks? Well, when I'm working, uh, you know, I need a lot of time to be alone. I mean, it's, it's, I'll go to hotels, you know, when I have little kids and things like that. Um, but basically, I like to work very early in the morning as the sun rises, where there's that incredible quiet and the day begins. So I don't write every day. I'm, I write when I'm working on a book like this. And then right now, because the pen work is so consuming, because you can't really do it with half a heart. And you have to really do it completely. I'm writing poems. So I'm able to work on a little poem here, a little poem there. And writing a lot of speeches, which yeah. is a thing I never knew I could do either. And I thought that I could do it. It doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I love the pen work. So people are like, oh, but you're not writing a book right now. I am working on an old book that mm-hmm. that I had put away for a while. So there will be a, another book coming out pretty soon, but um, but it's not a brand new book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's also maybe a, an important message for people to kind of take away is to, of course, you need discipline, but to not put so much pressure on yourself. We're just flagellating ourselves in a way, and then you kill the creativity. It becomes yet another item on your to-do list instead of a space that you're creating for yourself. Well, one to thing have that this... I find so that I don't get into the flagellation mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is that if you, like, if you set your alarm for six in the morning and you do not under any circumstance open any email mm-hmm. or social media or the news or CNN or any of that, because that's just like, the rabbit hole to hell, mm, yep. you know? And so um, you, you must not open any of that stuff. And you say to yourself, I won't get up until I've written 800 words. So 
you're there until you do the AA and you can see, you can check. Mm -hmm. And it means that the writing becomes very rich too because you think, oh my God, I have to write seven more words. I'm not there yet. And so you'll go back and describe the sunrise or mm -hmm. you'll go back and describe what the living room mm -hmm. looked like or, you know, it takes you back into more descriptive. And then when you get up from that, depending how long it takes you, an hour, two or three, then the rest of the day you're okay with yourself because mm -hmm. you've, you've done the 800 words. Yeah. I think that's a great, uh, a great ritual. One question though, are you allowed to get coffee before you do this? No, no, no. You have to get coffee because then your heart won't start. <laughs> so yeah, you have to have the coffee. <laughs> we might have room for one more question. Yes. Inga. Um, you started talking about the details earlier, but um, some of my favorites were not details that ended up being important, but they did contribute to the visual picture, especially of the trailer park. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorites was all the Barbies oh, yeah. that Noel had in the trailer, and then later sort of half buried <laughs> sunken the heads, uh... like a field of Barbies. And mm -hmm. I, that image was so powerful to me, and I think it had to do with, it, to me it was an echo of the dump behind them, where I, there's also you know broken toys, not just... Mm -hmm. uh, dirty food and clothes and garbage, but also, you know, broken things from childhood. And mm -hmm. did you have any particular use for these kinds of things when you came up with them or did they just sort of... That you're unconscious yeah, working it all out for you. Well, some unconscious, but I mean, for sure it became, you know, when I knew that was the sacred ground of the Native Americans and then it's a dump, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's not such a interesting metaphor it's not even maybe kind of a cliches but it was also very important to have the dump because of all the newspaper gathering mm -hmm. like we don't understand why ray collects all these newspapers from the dump and how he's like in cahoots now with the garbage mm -hmm. guy who saves the newspapers for him mm -hmm. so there were all kinds of reasons to do it to to do that that sort of got more complex as the book was written that the dump became more and more important for many mm -hmm. reasons yeah, I don't know. I've always been sort of fascinated by Barbies. You know, I grew up in Mexico City before we had the North American Free Trade Agreement. And there was one girl, I didn't have any Barbies, but there was one girl who had Barbies and she had tons of them. And they were just like so weird and so fascinating to me. And they're very strange. You know, they're very weird. Freakish looking. Yeah. <laughs> And the tiptoe. And so this friend, you know, she had, I mean, she had, you know, 150 Barbies. Mm -hmm. I mean, something incredible. And the mother would have the seamstress in Mexico make the Barbie clothes. Oh, my. So because you didn't have those packages of clothes in those days. They had to be made. And so I think that's an echo of that person and just this weird thing that she had with all these Barbies. And maybe even the beautiful idea of having a collection of something when you're living in a different yeah. park like yeah an abundance of one thing and also noelle is is disturbed i mean she's you know there's something wrong with noelle she's not normal and yeah. it's never mm -hmm. really defined what it is exactly mm -hmm. but she's some sort of asperger genius type and and it, and it also allowed me to um you know express how disturbed she was by meeting eli yeah yeah as she obviously just like everything is awoken in her mm-hmm to close us out, either what is the best piece of writing advice that you've ever received, or what is your favorite piece of writing advice to give? Well, I have quite a lot of 
writing advice, actually. Mm -hmm. They're like specific things, but for example, use all the senses. Like I'll go back and say, you know, do I have a smell? Do I have a taste? Because writing tends to be very visual. And the minute you put in other senses, it, it comes alive. So I always do that to myself. Mm -hmm. I'm always careful, especially in the novels, any sentence that begins with I saw or I thought, or, you know, you don't mm -hmm. have to say I saw. You have you just have to say there were many clouds in the sky. You don't have mm -hmm. to say I saw many clouds in the sky. Mm -hmm. So I'll go back and check to make sure that I've taken that yes. out. I'm very interested in the negative. I mean, Shakespeare used the negative metaphor all the time. My mistress's mm -hmm. eyes are nothing like the sun. Mm -hmm. The minute you use a negative metaphor, the writing becomes extremely ex exciting. I think first lines are very important because for me, the first line is like an arm that says, you know, come walk with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm always sort of shocked to read really bad first lines because you think, well, that's the first thing that the editor will read or the reader will read. And um, I noticed looking just at the beginnings of your chapters that so many of them just have amazing first lines that really intrigue you oh thank you well i'm very mm -hmm. conscious of wanting that to be you know mm -hmm. music i'm interested in the music and alliteration i'm also very interested in etymology of words what mm -hmm. words mean that's often where they come from because it's what we're using so it's sometimes just very cool to just decide well what is the etymology of this word i'm mm -hmm. using that's going very down to the basic you know uh, thing that's the words you're working with. I also really liked the one about, uh, you know, going through and looking for like and trying to change those similes into metaphors. Yeah, because they're it's more always powerful. becomes much stronger. And I think that's yeah. a great one. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing yeah. all thank your you. wonderful thank knowledge with us. And yes. thank you guys for being here. <laughs>